Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. And you can also see it on, hear it on YouTube. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Growing Small Town America. The Gilded Age is often seen as a story heralding the triumph of cities, the growth of modern industry, and the success of scale. Small town, largely farming America, the bedrock of the country before the Civil War, is often viewed as a world in retreat in this era, relatively declining in population, struggling to make ends meet, seeking out populist or other political answers to stem or control a rapidly changing country. But is that picture accurate? Or was the story of American farming also one of triumph, endurance, and ultimate success? With me today to discuss these questions and more, especially in reference to one of America's farming heartlands, the American Midwest, is Professor R. Douglas Hurt of Purdue University, a preeminent expert on American agriculture and the author most recently of Agriculture in the Midwest from 1815 to 1900. Doug, welcome. Thank you very much. So let us imagine uh, that, in, that an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, specializing in farming and agriculture, comes to visit the United States, uh, say, around the end of the Civil War uh, in the 1890s and around the end of the First World War to look into the state of agriculture and farming in small town communities in all these periods. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, I think um, your observer, um, Tocqueville or anyone else, would have found a country and particularly a region of the Midwest uh, undergoing and adopting considerable technological um, uh, innovation. Uh, it was an age in which uh, farmers increasingly were uh, investing capital to acquire the kind of technology that would make their lives more efficient and more productive. The downside of that would be, however, that uh, they were becoming increasingly in debt and the uh, credit system and the banking system wasn't really capable of meeting all of their needs. So they were uh, having some financial uh, concerns and ultimately um, uh, uh, crunches that they had uh, to deal with. The second thing that I think um, your observer would have noted if they had talked to people up and down Main Street that were involved in agriculture is that the federal government uh, um, wasn't necessarily meeting their needs in terms of educational uh, um, uh, um, opportunities for advancement to improve what they were doing. Uh, the uh, extension system or the agricultural experiment stations uh, we're still struggling to get uh, the newest uh, 
uh, discoveries uh, to farmers so they could make applications of uh, new developments in science and technology. Uh, but also they would have discovered that there is an effort on the part of the federal government to make some very substantive changes in terms of regulation of corporate America, especially the railroads, which had been a long time uh, um, a problem with many grievances on the part of farmers against uh, these large corporations. Uh, they would have uh, uh, been very much aware of the efforts of the federal government to uh, uh, regulate um, warehousing um, uh, grain trade, for example, on the part of, of farmers. So it was uh, really an age in which um, you have uh, uh, considerable progress, but it's not uh, nirvana. It's, uh, uh, it's a contested era, and um, there is much to be said in favor of it, but also uh, there are a lot of stumbling blocks and, and problems uh, during this period of time. So given all these uh, things and challenges and opportunities that they had to deal with, um, I wonder if you might comment on, uh, as I read through your book, you noted that uh, farmers, including in the Midwest, sort of veer, they, they started out fairly isolated, often quite uh, alone or alone with a family. Um, in this era, after the Civil War, was, was the American Midwestern farmer still largely isolated with a uh, few human beings around? Or had they, or had the population grown enough that they had neighbors they could talk to and work with? No, this is a, a region that um, uh, largely had been settled, and I think it's probably one of the myths about uh, the Midwest and American agricultural history. You might be able to uh, say more about uh, farm family isolation on the Great Plains, but in the Midwest, if you look at the country from the Ohio River to the uh, Mississippi River, or even extended to uh, the Missouri River. This is an area that had largely been settled. Railroads uh, had um, uh, traversed much of this region. Branch lines uh, were reaching small towns. So it's not a region of isolation, and uh, uh, it's uh, one where farmers uh, uh, had uh, considerable contact with the outside world with newspapers and um, uh, telegraph information. They knew the price of wheat in London, and they understood uh, um, the challenges of uh, overproduction and marketing in the Chicago market. So it's not it's not an isolated isolated region at all. Oh well, that's actually very good to know. Um, uh, I was kind of curious uh, when you mentioned, uh, and it was very interesting when you uh, get into discussing uh, populism uh, in the Midwest, how it didn't really take hold. Uh, I was a little bit surprised when you mentioned that most farmers in the Midwest were not just for establishment political parties, but were also Republicans. Uh, the common story, or perhaps it was, as I say, the common myth, was that your average uh, industrial worker uh, generally liked uh, tariffs uh, and the gold standard, while uh, farmers generally wanted uh, more free trade and a looser uh, money supply. So how was it that uh, so many remained faithful to the grand old party? Well, this is a complicated matter to be sure, and certainly the uh, grand old party um, is uh, uh, the lifeblood of politics in the Midwest at this time. 
in terms of the tariff, uh, even in the Midwest, you've got farmers who have different interests. Uh, uh, farmers that raised uh, sheep, and there's still a considerable number of them, uh, wanted a high protective tariff on, on wool, and the manufacturers, of course, wanted a low protective uh, tariff. Um, other farmers um, uh, saw the tariff as something that was uh, would be protective of all of their interests. The problem that uh, most of them uh, failed to realize at the time is the United States really didn't import uh, much uh, agricultural produce, such as wheat, from uh, from other nations. So it's um, it's an issue that uh, uh, plays uh, really in the forefront of American politics all through this time period. Uh, the Republican Party um, um, makes a, a great deal of uh, about the tariff and is quite successful in supporting high protective tariffs. And, and farmers uh, basically, rightly or wrongly, go along uh, with it. Uh, it's an area, though, in which um, uh, you have a considerable diversity in agriculture. These farmers, even though they're committed to a market economy, they're not really committed to a one-crop market economy. So there's diversity here. And the populist uh, party or the People's Party really could not generate enough interest or support on the part of these Midwestern farmers for um, many of uh, the reforms that they advocated, uh, uh, given the grievances that were coming out of the wheat-producing states in uh, the Great Plains particularly, or um, uh, from the, some of these uh, cotton farmers in the South. So it's really a different agricultural mix. And given the state of the economy, um, uh, Midwestern farmers really saw no advantage of a third party movement or, uh, that would give them any really benefit at all. And, and the Republican Party, and to an extent the Democratic Party, is, is very astute at this time and playing both sides against the other. And and advocating the kinds of things that they believe that the uh, farmers would be um, interested in. But uh, Republicans, by and large, were able to at least achieve enough substantive reforms of various sorts that uh, was sort of a, a stop to some of the grievances that farmers had. And they really just saw no interest or, or really any need in, in supporting the third party. Uh, the Republican Party met their needs, basically. So speaking of needs and reforms that uh, we're, they were doing, I noted uh, in your book that they wanted a couple of things. Uh, most especially, they wanted uh, regulation of the railroads. And I wasn't entirely clear. They wanted things like uh, so, uh, making sure that rates were fair, uh, that they could establish grain elevators, not just monop that, that were not monopolized by the railroads. How successful and how, how successful not only were they in bringing about those reforms, but how much did these efforts actually help farmers? Because sometimes you fight for regulation and it doesn't actually help you all that much. Well, that, that's that's true. The issue here is uh, the, um, the reforms that the uh, People's Party were advocating uh, for railroad regulation, um, uh, long-haul, short-haul rate differentials, uh, cheaper uh, cheaper freight fares and more equitable terminal, uh, treatment at the grain terminals. Uh, this is something that is really not um, uh, regulated on the federal level. Where they have some success is on the state level, particularly uh, through the state Supreme Courts, 
where some of the um, justices were populist or populist endorsed at this time. And they didn't necessarily um, vote uh, the way the party uh, was advocating in terms of uh, the kinds of rhetoric you see in in, uh, in the newspapers and their uh, uh, pamphlets and what we would call white papers today. Uh, but the, on the state level, and I'll give you Minnesota as an example, uh, Minnesota wanted the regulation of freight rates, um, uh, not just within the state, but uh, if a, a railroad passed through the state of Minnesota, Minnesota believed that there should be an equitable charge of farmers' grain. Uh, the uh, uh, federal government, the Supreme Court, said, well, actually, this is a, a federal matter and states cannot regulate interstate commerce. Where you see changes, though, and, and Minnesota is the example, uh, they have a railroad commission that sets rates that can be charged for the transport of grain and cattle and um, that kind of produce for farmers. But they get this regulation intrastate. So the state Supreme Courts really, um, in this case and several others, Nebraska and Kansas, for example, are able to achieve rate regulation within their borders. Uh, but it's not going to come on the federal level until much later. So they're successful in working through the system, but it's a very conservative um, uh, approach to all of this. But nonetheless, uh, they made their mark. And this is something that uh, many people, uh, when they look at the populace, don't uh, don't see and and they overlook. So uh, they have some successes to be sure, uh, and and one might say they're just marginal successes. But if you compare them to the platforms and the rhetoric within the populist movement, uh, you can see some incremental uh, changes. Um, Woman suffrage would be an, another example uh, uh, that play to um, uh, to this clientele. Your question about uh, 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 labor is one that the populists were never really able to um, uh, to crack in terms of winning over that constituency. Uh, they um, um, made a great deal about uh, championing the eight-hour day, uh, which they achieve in Kansas, and uh, the regulation of child labor, but uh, uh, they were never particularly successful in um, in um, um, joining with that particular uh, political aspect. And part of the matter is, and it may be overly simplified, but basically the working class wanted cheaper bread and farmers wanted higher grain prices for wheat. And so there's a, there's a difference here in, in interests and approaches to how you achieve what you want. Which brings me to my next question. Uh, you mentioned about talk about the the, the fact that um, Midwestern farmers and you go into great detail on this in your book about how they were very diversified, very careful and calculating in terms of what they invested in cultivating, depending on the prices. How is it that the 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 farmers in the Midwest managed to, by and large, have a balanced, uh, not all eggs in one basket? Uh, economy while the Great Plains and the South were much, much more single resource dependent? I would say in terms of uh, comparison to Midwest and the Great Plains states, it's um, to an extent uh, environmentally um, uh, determined. The 
a great protest from the People's Party comes out of the wheat-producing country of the Great Plains, uh, not corn country. Uh, in the Midwest, um, we have an environment that permitted a much more diversified agriculture with corn and wheat and, and cattle. And you get farther west, uh, the uh, precipitation rate declines, and you get into portions of Kansas and Nebraska and South Dakota, for example, it's it's really just wheat country without irrigation. And so those farmers really had all of their eggs in, in one basket. So if the price of wheat plunged uh, over production, which they frequently contributed to, uh, prices um, uh, were not uh, profitable enough to um, let them uh, have an adequate standard of living, at least by their own definition. And so they, uh, uh, like people today, start pointing fingers and looking for uh, people that cause your problems. And of course, it's the railroads and it's the grain, ele grain elevator corporations. It's the federal government that hasn't put enough money in circulation. You know, farmers always like inflation because uh, they can pay expensive debts with paper that they might have uh, incurred in specie. And, and, and so there's really a, a mix of, uh, of issues uh, in that respect. In the South, you know, the, uh, the People's Party is particularly interested in uh, uh, cooperatives that uh, would meet some of the needs of farmers for ginning cotton and buying wholesale and selling. But the, the Achilles heel in the South, of course, is the farmers that they needed uh, in the party are, are sharecroppers or tenants, and they're really uh, taking their orders, uh, not just economically, but politically from landowners. So there wasn't much opportunity to have really substantive change uh, there. But but basically, I think uh, I would say that the Midwest has a diversified agricultural economy so that uh, if prices slipped in one area, they could uh, have the opportunity to uh, hold their income steady if not improve it in another area. Uh, one thing in general, though, is agricultural prices tend to slide, even though they're very volatile during the late 19th century. Uh, they tend to um, um, uh, slide down and up, and railroad prices costs generally went down. Agricultural prices um, uh, sometimes went up, and that mitigated it. So it's a it's really a, a, a very volatile time in many respects, and and farmers in the um, Great Plains and to an extent in the South really uh, uh, looked for um, for um, the scapegoats and some of their um, uh, plans and and ideas for reform ultimately I think were achieved in some respects in the early 20th century but for the Midwest as a whole uh, this really wasn't particularly very uh, very attractive to uh, farmers in Ohio Indiana Illinois Kansas or uh, Iowa and uh, Minnesota, for example. Makes sense. Speaking of diversity, the Midwest, uh, as you note quite a bit in the book, uh, and as uh, one can glean from reading about the Midwest in general, was not just a place of diverse farming in terms of investments, but it was also a place of diverse peoples, uh, different kinds of immigrant groups from Germans and Scandinavians to Irish to uh, maybe some black Americans, uh, freed slaves or free blacks tried to settle and uh, make a living uh, from the Midwest. Was there any um, particular animosity or cooperation between all the different farming groups? 
when they got together in, say, the Grange or elsewhere, uh, or was it just business as business? Well, I, um, I, I don't have um, any knowledge of any uh, uh, contentiousness uh, among groups. Very often, uh, these groups uh, tended to um, uh, stay by themselves. Um, uh, the Germans are uh, an example of that, and, and to an extent, the Norwegians and the Swedes. I, I think the Irish immigrants are a little bit differently because they didn't uh, glom together in uh, in organized communities, where you have uh, um, um, settlement groups and associations uh, uh, sponsoring a particular ethnic group. Uh, people tended to... Uh, a light in one place and um, acquire the land that the company had uh, acquired for them, and, and that kind of keeps uh, people together. But um, uh, assimilation is uh, is slow for uh, a number of these people. Uh, the real key was to uh, learn English as quickly as you could, and that to help people blend into um, American society. Uh, rapidly I think as as possible but um, you, you do find um, the number of communities that uh, remain and uh, and put their imprint on the land some of the Dutch uh, um, settlers in Iowa for example uh, the German Russians if you want to extend the Midwest into the Dakotas and Kansas so tended to be much more isolated and by choice uh, than uh, some of these other groups. The Norwegians and the Swedes seem to assimilate uh, uh, very rapidly um, uh, and uh, they stand out, I think, perhaps as a, as a difference. But it's really a melding pot in that respect. Uh, but understanding that uh, that ethnic imprint uh, really doesn't go away. And you can, you can see it today with place names of uh, towns and streets and Kalachi festivals, uh, celebrating the Czech settlement and, and that kind of thing. The uh, exception, I think, to all of this is, of course, the uh, settlement of African Americans uh, uh, coming out of the South uh, during Reconstruction and, and trying to uh, uh, find um, a safe and, and uh, welcoming place. And, if you look at the exodusters in Kansas, that would be one example. But uh, the thing that um, uh, people sometimes forget when they think about the Midwest, and that is, in many respects, it's a very racist region. Uh, perhaps not with the mark of uh, Southern racism, but it's very much uh, it's very much a racist uh, racist area. It was early in the 19th century, even though slavery. Uh, theoretically prohibited by the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Um, a, a lot of, um, of indentured servants uh, and other people are slaves except by name, uh, particularly along the um, Ohio River area in that part of the country. But uh, there's, a, there's a tradition of racism and it doesn't go away. And uh, it, it's still very prevalent uh, with segregation and, and isolation of this particular group uh, during the late 19th century. Well, I think you have provided us with an absolutely excellent uh, uh, summary of a very important uh, subject. Uh, I've learned a lot and I hope my listeners learn a lot. Uh, 
Professor Hurt, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.